0: Happy Friday and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by Jason Lemkin at Sasta on Jason LK on Twitter and me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC, who you can find on Snapchat at H Stebbings. Now joining me today in the hot seat, I'm delighted to welcome Andy Wilson, co-founder and CEO at Logical. And I think it'd be fair to say that Andy really is a visionary behind Logical's product and marketing strategy, focusing on simplifying and democratizing the discovery process into three simple steps up. Upload, search, download. And Andy leads the company in its mission to put an end to e-discovery with the use of discovery automation. And I have to give Andy credit for a first ever in my podcasting career, as this is the first time we've had a guest who's chosen a walking meeting with Andy, deciding the fresh air was the right place for this interview to take place. So without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to Andy Wilson, co-founder and CEO at Logical. Andy, it's such a pleasure to have you on the official SASTA podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Now, I I want to start off by hearing a little about your story and how you came to be CEO at Logical.
1: Hmm. Yeah, sure. So I became CEO of Logical 2004 in Washington, D.C., where we started the company. Basically, we started the company because we saw all this crazy inefficiency in the legal market where attorneys and paralegals are printing out tons and tons of email and attachments to paper and reading it. And we're talking like tractor trailers uh, full of paper is pretty insane. So my co-founder and I started Logic, which is the first version of the company's name, to automate that. That's how I became CEO of Logical.
0: Uh, and so I want to center today around the theme of choice uh, and why choices were made and then how you navigated through them to the success. Uh, and so I want to start off with your transition of the business from services to SaaS. And, and how did you do that? And what were the kind of inherent challenges that you faced?
1: Oh man, there's a ton ton of challenges going from services to SaaS.
0: How did you approach it in the first place?
1: <laughs> uh, you know, it's like a band-aid, right? You've got to rip it off. You can't really just, you know, tiptoe into it. What we saw was this dying services industry that that we were in. We saw that software could automate a huge chunk of it, if not all of it. It was it was a tough decision because you're like if we don't do this, somebody else is going to do it. And so we made that decision to just dive in and, you know, start building it. And you, you can't just do that, I guess, right away. You have to actually plan it all out. You've got to do it uh, you know, very thoughtfully, especially if you have a bootstrap company where there's lots of services revenue that's coming in and existing client commitments that you have to
0: uh, maintain. It's a uh, it's a careful process. How did you handle those existing clients who brought in revenue without losing them while still transitioning to a SaaS based business?
1: Uh, yeah, very carefully. The type of work that we were doing was mainly like high profile litigation work, like the stuff that you would read about in the Wall Street Journal: bank under investigation from the SEC. We might have been involved as the company processing all the data behind the scenes. These cases go on for years. Think about the tobacco litigation that everybody knows about. That is still going on. That happened decades ago. So you've got these, these, um, you know, ironclad commitments with these clients. It's like you can't leave. It's tough. It actually took us years to wind down a lot of those client relationships and um, hand them off to to other companies.
0: I've never heard someone say having great retention is tough, but I love to hear that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a blessing and a curse in this type of business, but yeah.
0: Uh, uh, That's that's hilarious. So, so so, So what were the big challenges then for you in this? You
1: know, I think one of the biggest hurdles is the mindset. You know, you go from being a client-driven company to a customer-driven company, and there is—I mean—the words are simple, but the meaning is is very different, right? When you when you think about clients, um, you're typically thinking about customization. Right? Lots of relationships involved. Not to say that there's not you know, relationships um, um, or customization in SaaS, but it's a very different mindset. And in SaaS, you're, you're building a product. If you're doing SaaS the right way, you're doing single instance multi tenant, right? Everybody's get, basically getting the same version of the product. Therefore, there isn't a lot of customization. You can turn features on and off, those types of things. But, um, you know, the the way that you interact with, with your customers now is very different in the way that you interact with your clients. And if you've been running a services business for, you know, five years like we were doing, trying to unlearn that and learn a new way of interacting with customers was probably the hardest challenge.
0: What was the biggest thing you learned how to say no? <laughs>
1: that, that's, to, that's to, probably new,
0: the to new one. customers or to kind of user demands or to
1: um, no to user demands. You know, because again, you know, when you're working with clients, um, you're you're crafting a unique experience for every single project, right? Every single project's a unique snowflake. You've got to make it happen. So creativity is a huge a huge asset there. But you know, when when you're on SaaS, you get a lot of feedback from your users, and if you're you're coming from the services side and you're very client-driven, you might be um, you know, pulled into that, I'm going to customize everything for you, uh, which is a bad idea because then you end up building a product for a very small uh, selection of customers, and that takes a lot of um, discipline to, uh, to, to understand that.
0: And can I ask, do you not think the rise of customer success increases the client-like nature back into SaaS instead of the customer with the inherent personalization of customer success?
1: Hmm, good question. Um, I think, uh, to a certain degree, yes. But I think the challenge there is, you know, for companies that are really into customer success is to, you know, not try to design the product around all the demands that they have, but more of the workflow. Like, how can we still get the job done with the tools that we have? without creating an infinite amount of features and tools to get this thing done.
0: And when you look back now at the transition, is there anything you'd have done differently? I I probably would have tried to raise
1: money sooner rather than later, knowing what I know now. When we raised money from Limkin, and you can see it in the the data, like everything just takes off. I think it goes down to focus. You know, when we didn't have, when we were bootstrapped and we're balancing services and building the SaaS, you kind of have, you know... One ship that's sinking, and you're trying to shoot holes in it to sink faster, and then another, you're trying to like you know build an actual new ship that's going to last forever. You know that's really tough. You're just jumping back and forth, and you know if you're bootstrapped, you're you're very cash flow uh, conscious. But once you got once we got funding. We could really focus on the SaaS side and just start blowing holes in the, in the old boat. Uh, uh, it's the Lemkin effect. It <laughs> yeah, it's the Lemkin effect. We're gonna sure. we're
0: gonna coin that right now. Um, yeah, Jason I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. <laughs> <something> like that. <laughs> he will love that. I should get a, <laughs> I should get a bonus for that one. Uh, what What do you think the biggest value add of having Jason is? Is it his kind of domain expertise? Hmm. Is it his cash alone? What is it for you? I think it's his, his network, his
1: personality. He, he really tries to go out and, and help every single one of his companies. Like he is, uh, I've never seen anything like this. Like he'll just send you an email like, Hey, you know, I was thinking about this. What do you guys, would you like to get introduced to this person? And he's constantly doing that, trying to connect, trying to help and, and add value in you know, some obvious and non-obvious ways. Um I think it's great. You know that the, the his SaaS knowledge is he's Mr. Saster, right? So He is Mr. Saster. <laughs> right? So that, I mean that's all just table stakes. Like if you want to go and 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 hear him uh you know talk about um you know all the metrics behind it you know, what makes a great SaaS company like he can talk about that all day long. Um, but I think where he really adds a lot of value is just his, his network and um, you know, his personality and his drive.
0: And I said at the beginning we were going to talk about choice and how choices have affected you in the business. And and you mentioned there obviously the choice to take funding externally. So uh, mm-hmm. my question is, why did you decide to remain bootstrapped for so long then?
1: Maybe a little bit of pattern recognition on our own part because we had been really successful being a bootstrap company. You know, Very profitable
0: and... Why fix something that ain't broke?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so so, you know, maybe it was a little bit of arrogance about, hey, you know, we were really successful doing the services thing without outside funding. Um, we should be able to do this as well when we go SaaS. You know, the, the reality is like, it's just a totally different uh, business model, and it requires a lot of capital. It's not like the on-premise model where you could just ship software and then somebody else has to maintain it, right? <laughs> Support it and all this. No, you got to have everything. It's just a very different model.
0: Was there, was there a catalyst, a particular moment for you realizing that VC funding was a, a must for you instead of the bootstrapped option?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so I moved out to California about five years ago. I'd say about two years ago, I just talking to my friends and then realizing as we had a product in the market, like, oh, my God. There's so much more we need to do here, and therefore we need to we need to get more cash. And you try and go to your customers to get cash because that's the that's the best way to do it. That's what I found. We've, we've been really uh, really good at that. But you know, SaaS is not something where you can just you know charge a million dollars unless you're Viva. You know, right out of the gate, it just doesn't work that way, right? You, you've got these small incremental monthly recurring payments that come in, and over time it, it becomes amazing. But it takes a long time to, to get there. Easy learning for us. Like, oh, well, wow, we need a lot more cash here.
0: And the, um, what would you say the main thing that Cash Allowed you to do? Was it team expanding? Was it feature expanding? What was the freedom that the Cash enabled you?
1: Well, well, first, um, it was the focus, right? So, you know, we're juggling the services side and the SaaS side. So it allowed us to uh, put almost 100% of our focus on developing the SaaS product. That was huge. And you know, in, in doing that, um, we could also focus on, uh, you know, sales processes and hiring more engineers so that they could actually you know build more features uh, for our customers. So, it all came down to focus.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm I'm intrigued then as a newly transitioned SaaS company, how did you build up the sales process?
1: I did a lot of the sales myself. I still do today. You know, going out, I try and talk to customers every day, um, just hearing what they like and you know what their challenges are. Uh, So, you know, I did a lot of that, just trying to understand, you know, what's what's their willingness to pay, doing a lot of price experiments in the market, um, and then slowly bringing on salespeople, uh, I had one other person on my team that was, was super helpful in, in selling um, and then you know bringing on salespeople one at a time, two at a time before it really started to click.
0: And, and then finally, before we dive into the, the quick fire, uh, you, you mentioned your move to California there and you also mm-hmm. took the decision to move the entire team from D.C. to California. Mm-hmm. So Why was this and, and when should startup founders consider doing the same, do you think?
1: Uh, dc is great but california is pretty amazing so you know from the, a weather perspective it's just the night and day difference absolutely amazing <laughs> you know from an opportunity perspective too i mean this is where tech is and there's just so much you know networking that goes around here it's it's pretty amazing. And we wanted to have everybody together. We're, we're a bit of a band of brothers. I think the average tenure in the company is over seven years. We've got people with us that have been over nine years, you know. It's really important for us all to stay together. You know, bringing them out to um, California was, was pretty critical for us.
0: Was it difficult to persuade those that have families maybe rooted in D.C. and lives in D.C.?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So we put together relocation packages, you know, very attractive ones where, you know, we would we would pay for their entire family to come out, we'd pay for rent for a certain amount of time. We Increase their salaries to be um, in market in the Bay Area, uh,
0: and and now I want to dive into the quickfire that we call the sixty-second saster. So, your favorite sas
1: reading materials? My favorite sas reading materials. Uh, well, saster for one. Um, <laughs> that's no, that's the, table table the Lincoln
0: effect. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: you know, I really like David Skoke's stuff at uh, 4entrepreneurs.com. He's amazing. Uh, you know, Tomas Tungus, yeah, he's he's pretty awesome. Uh, Christoph Jans also great.
0: And then the hardest position to hire for, what's it been for you? Oh, sales for
1: sure. You know, you have this. Um, you got product market fit. That's table stakes for any company trying to do anything. Um, you have to have that fit. But then there's this other fit that needs to apply too, which is the sales market fit. You got to find the right salesperson for the right the right market, and that's um, that's not as obvious as as people
0: think. And that's too that's too good a juicy topic for me to avoid. There. So how do you assess sales market fit, and how do you know when you've hit it? Trial, trial
1: and error. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, Jason talks a lot about you know in, at a given in ACV, everything's kind of the same. There's definitely some truth to that, but I, I think it's it's very industry um, related. Um, you know, people that have sold SaaS before to enterprises can probably sell SaaS to other enterprises. Um, yeah, that much is true. But in our market with legal. You know, understanding the legal market and SaaS is a bit of a hybrid role. You know, we we tried to find people out there that could
0: adjust to that, or had experience in, in one or the other, and we could we could teach them. Mm-hmm. And how do you look for that adjustability? Are there signs of kind of inherent mental flexibility?
1: part of the interview process is to see how coachable people are, you know, uh, and how much they come in knowing Uh, that's really important for me. Like if somebody's applying to, to work on the team, I want to know what do they know about us? Also important is what do they know about the market? You know, how are they thinking about the market? What are they, who are the competitors, right? Like what makes us stand out? What's, what's different from from us. Um, And then we go through various exercises through that, uh, interview process to see, you know, when they do their pitch or their demo to us, um, and then we give them feedback, I want to see, like, how do they adjust? And the ones that adjust are a pretty good fit. The ones that don't take the feedback
0: or don't adjust, it's, it's probably not going to work out. And then I've got one from Jason here, and he he asked, how do you attract A-level people to SaaS from more traditional industries? Well,
1: you know, team number one, right? If it's a good team, people want to work with, with another good team. Um, on the sales side, compensation can be huge. If you're in a high-growth company with a really big market, I think a lot of SaaS companies are, are putting together very attractive um, you know, compensation structures where you know the typical SaaS sales rep is probably going to make roughly 8% or one month of MRR in commission on a simple formula. But a high-growth company, they might be making two. Two months, right? Closer to 20% in, in MRR.
0: Mm-hmm. And how, I, I mean, I'm intrigued there, moving away from the quickfire. How do you stop other elements of the organization feeling uh, left out to be very childish with salespeople getting these huge incentives and engineering not getting anywhere near the same?
1: You know, everybody benefits, right? It's, it's a car and a horse problem. Engineering, you got to have the product, and, and unless you're like Slack and it's just going to sell on its own, but I'm pretty sure Slack has a sales team now too. Um, but you know, most companies need a sales team. They need people to go out there And market what you have, and you know, um, talk to the customer, and and get it in front of them, so they can bring it back, right? So you bring that cash back, and you can fund that. uh, Take that cash, and then fund more things in the in the in the company, like you know, more engineers, more success, et cetera, everything. Uh, everybody benefits from it, so sales is a you know, bit of a rising tide.
0: And, and we spoke about sales market fit, uh, but before that, you mentioned product market fit. How did you know when you had product market fit with your newly transitioned SaaS business?
1: Well, you know, there's definitely the the, the gut reaction, just you know, hearing customers, and then there's you know some quantitative things that we did. Um, we implemented a an NPS widget very early on, just to understand you know what people were were thinking. Uh, numerically, right? you know the you know the one to ten scale, and um early on the m p s was terrible.
0: <laughs> it was absolutely <laughs> terrible uh, what what was it what was it? do you remember
1: <laughs> Oh, it was like negative fifty or something <laughs> around there it was it was so bad um, <laughs> and and you you find out like it, it's great it's it's really good feedback. Um, sometimes you got to really pull it out of people, but uh, you start talking to them and you find out the, the the issues that they're having are so easy to fix, right? They're they're not like um, this is a really shitty product. It's hey, I really don't like it when this happens. It could be a pop up window or you know something like that. And you start fixing those, and and over time it just start. And if you measure it, like over time it just gets better and better and better and better and better. And now NPS is over seventy, a number that we we track religiously now. Uh, where everybody in a company, uh, as, as far as we can, is talking to customers on a weekly basis so they can understand their, their struggles, and then we can
0: design around that. And uh, I want to talk about differentiation now. And we said about differentiation in proliferated markets. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so on sales and marketing, with 10,000 vendors in the market, how do you, at Logical, look to differentiate yourself as a product? A couple things. Um,
1: we use a lot of our customers to differentiate us. That's been the most successful thing for us, to, you know, engineering that. So if you go to our website, you'll see the reviews um, at the top of, of the nav. And they, these are like very open and honest reviews of real customers talking about what they like and what they don't
0: like. So is, this, so is this brand advocacy?
1: Yes, it's, it's, it's kind of like that. Yeah, like in, in fluidive, uh but without the actual application behind it and you know, very generic. So yeah, that's, that's, been, uh, that's been huge, just putting that out there. Um, and in our market, we're in a very conservative market. We're selling to lawyers. I mean, their job is to mitigate risk. You know, anything new equals risk. <laughs> so you know, we have to do this probably more so than other people saying, hey, it's okay. You know, that other people are actually buying this.
0: And uh, and you'll be all right. So, and you said you said uh, about speaking to customers kind of once a week style. Is that how you engender such brand advocates? Because it's difficult to make brand advocates for a, a software product uh, that it's not inherently personable. So, how do you look to engender those brand advocates?
1: Uh, to, yeah, to, well, not just talking to them; you're listening to them um so you're having conversations getting to know them and then acting on right like the the worst thing is you go out there and you talk to your customers and they tell you all these things that you could do to make their life so much easier and better or whatever and they do nothing about it but how cool is it when you have that conversation with a customer and then a week or a couple weeks later you come back to them and say hey that thing we talked about Yeah, we implemented it,
0: and here's how it works. And then they also feel part of the creation process, which makes them kind of love it even more.
1: Yeah, we've even put our customer's name in like the comments of the source code. Yeah, and we tell them that. <laughs> like, you're you're actually part of the uh, the, the library here. So. <laughs> um, so I think that's really helpful.
0: You said about selling to lawyers that, uh, and I've got another one which ties in very nicely from Jason. Uh, he clearly has far too much time on his hands if he's providing me with all these questions. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. He's an insomniac. Well, that's true. Yeah, okay. Maybe that, that is very true. Uh, but he wants Know, how do you attempt to make selling to the legal sector sexy and interesting
1: ah <laughs> uh, yes this is, this is one of my uh, i love this topic so yeah it is like so crusty and old right like and that's that's awesome right that's, those are the industries that you want because if you can turn everything upside down and stand out it's it's a great opportunity to to be in, and legal is is one of those. So you've got a industry that is a lot of old technology, really boring, really clumsy stuff, fairly expensive, all these things. And if you can turn that upside down with a very sexy product, um, a fun company, right? That's writing kind of edgy stuff as far as our market goes. Like we really push the limits on things, you know, calling calling out lawyers for you know, Hey, maybe, maybe there's a better way to do this type of stuff versus, you know, what you're doing today. I bet, and I bet they love that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we just wrote a piece about, Hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't, um, uh, charge $50, uh, to read a single email. You know, there's a better way of doing that. Uh, somebody spent $70,000 to read uh, 1,500 emails, which is just insane. So, so you know, there's, there's lots of opportunity there in these older markets to go against the grain. And, and that's all we're doing. We're just turning it upside down. If the service is really crappy,
0: make it amazing. right? If the products are hard to use, make it really easy. And then the final question for you today is on outbound versus inbound and how you at Logical tried to increase outbound in such an established space and what mm-hmm. you found the major breakthroughs to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, outbound's still a work in progress. Um, that's another thing. Like, you know, if you think about lawyers, especially with inside law firms, um, they're all up against billable time. And so, if you're not a client calling them, they don't want to talk to you because it's not billable time. So you're actually taking away revenue from them. It's kind of a weird thing to think about. Um,
0: so they're to- losing money by talking to you, essentially.
1: Yeah, exactly, and so it's 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 kind of challenging. Like, how do you how do you overcome that? Because you still have to get in front of them to get them aware of of your product. Um, And so these are things we're still working on. We're doing I don't want to spill you know too much here, but we're doing creative outbound, very creative outbound campaigns. I mean, everybody is doing email, and then you know if you look at like the easy scale, right? Email is so easy. There's so much sales automation tools out there now that everybody's doing it. And when everybody's doing something, you should really question whether or not you should be doing that. And, you know, if it applies to your market, like, I get all this spam now, that crocodile, you know, have you been eaten by a crocodile?
0: Where, where are you? Have you seen those emails? It's just dreadful. I think this must <laughs> just be you. I've never had an email about crocodiles. Or like a
1: hippo or something. Well, if you don't reply to these people in three days, the automation system will send you this, uh, you know, uh, this, this, this email saying, you know, hey, have you been eaten by a crocodile? <laughs> Um, some silly things like that. So, uh, (laughs) anyway, um, so you got to get really creative, right? And, and one way of doing that is trying to use the phone, but in our market doesn't work incredibly well. Um, you know, direct mail might work for you, but we're we're doing other things like sending them little things here and there, um, having people contact them, uh, that know them, you know, those types of things. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, super scalable, but you know, at our ACV, it, it works for
0: us. Well, Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm really so pleased that we heard about the Logical Journey. The walking walk actually worked phenomenally well, so I will suggest that all my guests do it in the future. For everyone listening, Andy has actually been walking and getting some fresh air while he's been doing this. So uh, thank you, Andy, for giving up the time while you were walking. Uh, And it was so great to hear your journey. Uh, Cool. Thanks, Harry. Well, there you go, our first walking interview. And a huge thank you to Andy for giving up the time today to be on the show and revealing the incredible journey with Logical. And if you can't get enough of SASTA, then you can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK, or you can follow me on Snapchat at H. For more information, you can head over to saster.com that's dot com, where there's a whole host of resources on all things SAS. As always, thank you so much for tuning in today. We so appreciate your support. And- And we look very forward to bringing you Monday's episode with Harry Glazer, CEO and founder of Periscope Data.